Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. Episode 17, The International RPG Scene, recorded at Gen Con 2012 by Jason Morningstar, presented by Jason Morningstar and Dominic Medowell-Thomas. So uh, it's uh, it's time to get started. Shall we uh, shall we begin? And if, yeah. if, if people want to come in, then we'll uh, yeah. Sounds good. Out. So why don't we introduce ourselves? Sounds good. I'm Dominic McDowell Thomas. I run Cubicle Seven Entertainment, and I'm Jason Morningstar. I'm a co-founder of Bully Pulpit Games, uh, and uh, we're here to talk about the international RPG scene. There's one very important question we need to ask first. What's that? Um, where are you all from? Are <laughs> <laughs> you from America? That's everybody, isn't it? Originally or now? Oh, that's, that's difficult, isn't it? Um, yeah. Emotional loyalty. <laughs> Who are we going to offend? <laughs> Greece. Greece. We're not talking about the Greek RPG scene today. <laughs> yeah? Well, that's actually uh, it's a good point. Uh, if you have uh, knowledge about what's going on in a particular country, we'd yeah. love it if you'd share it. Um, uh, so uh, we, can, we can make this uh, conversation, especially since there's just a few people here. Um, and I think we've sort of divided up the world informally. I think so. Yes. I think so. Yeah, yeah. You're in charge of Europe. Yep. And I'm in charge of everything else. <laughs> yep. And, and, which is probably a fair division of labor. Uh, yeah, yeah. In terms of role playing games. So, uh, and t- to clarify, we're talking about analog tabletop role playing games. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, I think it was one of the um, I think a good starting point was um, back with the last sort of official market research that was widely disseminated. Um, that Wizards did back in 2000 um, just to try and get an idea of the number of gamers there were around the world came up with a total of about 6 million and that was 3 million in the States 3 million everywhere else so I think that's the first thing to bear in mind is that generally the um, the scene in other countries by and large is a lot smaller than it is here um, certainly convention wise with, with one notable, notable exception but, but that's board games as well um, yeah, you, the, our conventions. Yeah, we we don't have anything like this in the UK, for example. What's the largest uh, gathering in the UK? I'd say at the moment it's about about eighteen hundred. Okay. Yeah, something like that. I've been to a convention in Brazil recently. Twelve thousand people. Oh, awesome. Yeah, and I think uh, internationally a, a lot of uh, conventions end up being game and comic conventions, or mm. you know, a, a variety of. So like Luca in, in Italy, which is monstrous, it's as big as this, but it's almost all comics. So there's just a tiny sliver of, of gaming and then a sub-sliver of role-playing in that massive, you know, population. Mm. I want to go to that one. That was, it's supposed to be beautiful. It's Luca. great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A really gorgeous city. Yep. And we can also recommend places to go. <laughs> <laughs> go to Luca. It's good. Uh, so uh, I, don't, I don't know that we're going to be able to share information about it every place, but I, I put out feelers and, and asked sort of my international contacts about what's, uh, what the situation is in, in the places that they live, so my samples are uh, both biased and uh, based on where people happen to live. So I can tell you a lot about Slovenia, for example, uh, but I can't tell you anything about uh, Slovakia. Well, I can tell you a little bit about Slovakia. Um, as, just as an example, I know a guy in Thailand, so I learned all about what's happening in Thailand, and I'll share that with you. Um, but not so much about Malaysia. Right. Well, let's talk about Europe first. Yeah, sure. Uh, right, the UK. Um, the UK has um, a fairly long tradition of role-playing games. Uh, they came into the UK when, um, I don't know heard of uh, Ian Livingston and the UK Steve Jackson. Um, they um, came over to Gen Con, um, I think it was in the early 70s. <clears throat> it was still very small and just got absolutely inspired by what was going on. Um, they you know, spent a lot of time with, uh, with, uh, with Gary and um, yeah, were just completely blown away. Um, they, they got an agreement with um, with, with uh, the Proto TSR to have exclusive um, distribution in uh, the UK, and I think it was Europe at the time. Um, but um, I mean, interestingly, it wasn't just straight distribution because it was so much cheaper to produce the books in the UK um, and then disseminate them from there that they ended up you ended up having UK editions of stuff, um, and then eventually um, uh, the original material that was coming out of out of Games Workshop, which was the the company that they had. Um, you may have heard of them. 
Um, and you know, it's, I mean, in the UK, we look back on, on before Games Workshop went in for global domination of um, the Warhammer brands. Um, that's, that's looked back as the golden age of the UK gaming scene. Um, I mean, you had, I'm trying to think of some of the unique creatures that came out of Games Workshop. The Gith Yankee, the Gith Yankee I think, Yankee, that yeah. was, which it actually it was designed by um, Charles Stross, um, who and we're now publishing his, um, his laundry book, so we're doing the game version of that. So it's really small industry and everything comes back. Actually, his first break was um, writing for White Dwarf magazine um, back in the day. So uh, Some, Something that uh, I think is relevant here to point out, if you look at something like the Gith Yankee, I think it reflects a uniquely uh, UK sensibility. Mm-hmm. There, there's a very different feel to the, the modules that were being published uh, on, you know, on that yeah, side of the Atlantic. Yeah. Uh, it just sort of made the game your own. It was, yeah. it was a little different, which is cool. You know? and I think that that show when um, uh, when things like I'm trying to think of it. I mean, the, the best example I can think of is that first edition of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, which is such a dark <laughs> fantasy game. I mean, it really is quite revolting in places. Um, and yeah, we, we do seem to specialise in that. I mean, I think it's it's kind of that that Northern European mm. um, mindset of sing round the fire and drink because we're all going to die <laughs> we know Grendel's on the way <laughs> that's actually a good segue into uh, the Nordic countries yeah yeah they oh it's crazy it it's, is, it is. I'm, I'm always amazed the um, um, no, there's too much swearing in that story um, the <laughs> we're allowed a little bit of cussing scandal scandalous yeah here's your scandal <laughs> oh, it's not really a scandal. It's more just I. I seem to have um, Scandinavians seem to look at me as the party person. Oh God! Um, <laughs> on the Prague Underground, I was accosted by a group of young Swedes who just came up to me, and it was, "Where is the fucking party? <laughs> Take us to the party." Um, it was. I know, I know. And that happened then. I think it was in Budapest. It was just everywhere throughout Europe. Scandinavians you. think that I am the Pied Piper of the party. It's, um, yeah, it's good for my ego, anyway. But, I suppose. But, yeah. It gets you into a lot of trouble. Stop deviating yeah. off there, anyway. Yes, um, the, uh, the, the amazing thing is um, that, that really hits you with, with um, Scandinavia and Alan German as well is that there's the strength of the live action scene. Um, it's absolutely amazing. Um, you've got. I think that it really hit me when we went to Copenhagen, and um, in, in the middle of Copenhagen, there's um, Tivoli Gardens, which is it's like a theme park in the middle of the city. Um, and we walked into the middle, there's the central area, and they've got um, the usual like sheds selling crafts and stuff like that. Um, about a quarter of them were full of live action role playing equipment. And this is you know, in the big family outing centre in the city. Um, it's just you know, so commonplace. Um, that was a real eye opener. Um, and then, I mean, when, when you move down into Germany, um, you've got, because uh, D&D didn't make it into Germany for quite a while, so um, they had um, the, the first role-playing game in Germany, uh, Das Schwarze Auge, uh, the Dark Eye. Um, it really just, that just took off, and D&D never, could never replace it. I mean, I think because it was coming in in English, and um, they had a lot of good material that was really culturally aimed for Germany. Um, that, yeah, so you, to this day, you've got, um, you, that, that's still the number one seller. Um, and then twi- the, for, for promotional stuff, I mean, twinned into the, the live reaction side of things, they've got like these feature films running on their booths of things that they've filmed, and it's absolutely amazing. Uh, one anecdote that I thought was really charming about uh, German live-action role-playing, and we're getting off on a little bit of a rabbit trail here, but this is a good story. So uh, there's a huge event, and I, I don't remember the name of it, but it's uh, many thousands of people come to play, and they divide you into fantasy races by language. So if, <laughs> if you speak English, if you choose to speak English at this event, you're a dark elf. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it sort of uh, goes from there. Can I add to that? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I live in Iceland, I've been there for many years, and it's quite a lively gaming scene, I think. There's um, two um, gatherings a year from about 150 people, for, for a population of 300,000, I think it's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, there's not so much laughing, perhaps because it's too cold. <laughs> I, I don't know any laughing group, but uh, there's a really strong RPG community there. It was, I was in Finland in the, the spring, and they, that was a topic of conversation. People were like, what's up with Iceland? You know, like it's one of the Nordic countries, but 
we don't know of any LARPers there. We don't know what's going on. So that's good to hear that you guys have a lively tabletop scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's move down in Europe. What about uh, France and Italy? Um, well, on Germany, I'll just oh, Essen. Um, if you ever get the chance to go to a games convention in Europe, go to um, Spiel in Essen. Um, I mean, I can't remember exactly how many you get to, but the, their door is something like 110 to 150,000 people. Monstrous. Um, and it's absolutely enormous. It's predominantly board game and card game. The German um, uh, gaming culture um, is that they have a much stronger family gaming culture. So it's very common for you know, the family sits down and plays a board game on a Sunday afternoon. Um, <clears throat> so you get that sort of thing. And it's, it's just mind-blowing. Um, they go, oh, we don't do much role-playing here. We know, yeah, so it's not so much of a role-playing. They, they've got a hall that's, I think, bigger than the one in Origins, if you've been there. And that's like, oh, that's nothing. You know, <laughs> in the role-playing ghetto. <laughs> like, yeah, I'll, I'll, that can do me nicely, actually. That was, uh, that was good fun. Um, and that's the only uh, convention centre I've been able to drive a van into the hall. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I was very rock and roll. That's nice. <laughs> I thought, should I do a handbrake turn at the end? That's going too far. Um, but yeah, that, that one's fantastic. Um, and German food, so can't go wrong really. Um, yeah, France has a thriving French language uh, role playing scene. Uh, now, the, peculiar, the, the peculiarities of it are that licensed games go nowhere in France. Um, and I don't know whether that's sort of like a more of an independent streak or wanting to do that other thing, I'm not sure. But um, the uh, licensed games do badly. Um, it's predominantly uh, medieval fantasy is what they want. Um, I think it's very hard to break um, horror games. I mean, the, the, every country has its own Cthulhu enclave, but um, France seems to yeah, want the medieval, the medieval stuff. Um, Spain, I think, is, is a bit more varied. Um, the, I don't have a lot of information on Spain, actually. It's, uh, I think, I, it, I think it's, one of, it's one of those... Um, um, one of those countries where they prefer Spanish language um, games coming in because I think with Germany, um, I get the, the feedback we get is that they've been bitten quite a few times by poor German translations mm. of English language games. And, and uh, operating on our scale, so we're a pretty small scale publisher. Uh, the Germans tell us we, the people who are playing your game are just buying the English edition. Yeah. That it's there's just no percentage in in funding a translation for it. Yeah. Whereas the, the Spanish it was the opposite. They very yeah. much wanted native language materials and French too. Obviously. Yeah. That was my experience. I, I comic stores and gaming stores and there's just the, the books that have that are English, English ones just don't have dust on them I mean they really are <laughs> you're talking about Spain? yeah it's Spain, oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's funny isn't it and Spain also has the edge entertainment group yeah is allied with fantasy like and they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're we, we work with, we partner with them for yeah. translation as well they have a big game called Anima very thick lots of rules mm. classes and things like that so. And that's a that was it. Did it originate in Spain? I believe so. Okay. Um, one of the things that has it really impressed me, both in France and Italy, and we can talk about Italy in a second, is that there's a, a pretty strong comic and graphic novel culture there. Uh, that also means that they have tons of printers who are very comfortable with producing very high-end uh, materials, so their games tend to look great. Mm. Um, uh, that's certainly been my uh, impression. Uh, we partnered with a Italian company, and, and their version of our game is just gorgeous. You know, it's, <laughs> it's way better than ours. <laughs> it is. Um, just because they have the, uh, I assume because they have this infrastructure that's based on a, a very casual uh, comics consumption culture that we, in, in America, we don't really have anymore. Like you know, in Italy you can buy them on the newsstand. It's pretty. It's it's not unusual to just pick up a, you know, a copy of Diabolique to take home on the train with you. It's. I mean, we may go off topic a bit, but it's, um, I think when we started doing translations, it was it was funny the learning process of how when you're when you're approaching your own game design, having to bear in mind. I mean, especially us with more the, the actual um, the graphic design and things like that, and how you're constructing. The files and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. For um, yeah, that's, that's an interesting challenge when you start going into that, isn't it? It is very much so. The, and the other piece of that is that uh, uh, it, it was fascinating for me to work with uh, translators. And, and our game fiasco is in six languages now, and will be in a seventh soon. Um, because there are colloquialisms and idioms that you just don't think yeah. about, like split level ranch. 
that's a very American thing, right? A ranch house. And you have to explain in detail what that is with photos and, and make it clear and then they have to find some cultural uh, you know, similarity, something that they can use. Amway was another one that they were like, we, we don't do that. We don't, we don't even, we don't have Amway, but we have other things sort of like that. It's one of the things that catch you out as well, because even, even um, yeah, sure. uh, working with, uh, with English, uh, sorry, with, with, with American artists, um, and things that, you know, even, you know, we're very, very similar countries, um, but just like, the references we make, I think the art brief was, um, it, it's a village, it's just, you know, just an average village <laughs> with um, this location, this location, this location, just, you know, an average village, go nuts. Um, and then we got back, you know, very straight roads and intersections, <laughs> like, Oh, I can see what's happened here. Eight mile room. <laughs> yeah. yes. so, you know, it's funny how you can get caught out with things. Um, yeah, Italy um, is a very small uh, role play market. Um, uh, it's very passionate. Mm. Um, One thing that's interesting about Italy is they have non-profit associations that mm. do publishing as well on a small scale. So like, we partnered with these guys who basically, if they were here, they'd be a 501c3. Uh, and they'd publish you know, small press role playing games which is weird, but that's, that's how it works for them, you know, on our scale. I don't know, do you do Italian editions? Um, yes, yeah, we, we um, with, I mean, it's, we're still fairly new to the translation thing, but with the, the One Ring was the first sort of mass translation mm -hmm. that we did, and that went straight into French, Spanish, Italian, German. Um, Isn't the author Italian? Oh, sorry? Isn't the author of the game Italian, uh, of the One Ring? The author. Uh, oh, I guess, sorry, yes, Francesco, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, he lives in Venice, and we're all very jealous. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, that was the first way. But the, the, to be honest, the other way, we've been more translating things back from, um, uh, from Septième Cirque, the uh, French company that um, did the, the French original versions of um, Chin, the Warring States, our mythic China game. Uh, McDrassel, the new Viking game that we're doing, and um, Keltia, which is um, it's kind of like an authentic Arthurian thing. So it's King Arthur, the Welsh warlord. <laughs> I'm Welsh, so <laughs> I'm biased. <laughs> uh, I want to mention Poland I, uh, because I, I met some guys recently who talked about something that's very interesting that I, that I had never heard of before. Um, uh, there, so, so uh, the, the Poles look back to, to Ruthenia and Sarmatia as a historical touchstone of when the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was in ascendancy, and that's like that was the time when the Poles were real badasses. And so, if if you're going to role play, you're going to role play Sarmatia, basically. Uh, and so, uh, what developed, or one of the things that developed there is that uh, these guys started LARPing, doing Sarmatian LARPs which turned into Sarmatian role-playing games and Sarmatian CCGs, all of which intersect. So uh, I haven't been, but apparently at, at some Polish conventions you can go and see guys who are LARPing as you know nobles from the 17th century, I guess, uh, but they're also playing the card game uh, you know, uh, that, that's about being 17th century nobles, and then they're going to go role-play as well. So like this weird sort of transmedia thing within deeply geeky culture that's very specific to their sort of national identity, uh, which I don't, I don't know. I don't necessarily see that anywhere else. No, no it's not. Isn't that weird? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So go Poland. <laughs> I, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a line there you don't want to cross, though, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. There's definitely yeah, and that's that's interesting too because uh, there's a that's a good point actually. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a dark piece of nationalism associated with that. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a little little weird, but. You know, know, it's a bit like an ice, and people do a lot of fighting role playing. Sure, yeah. yeah. Reference the sagas as yeah. their source material. And soon the people of Wales will yes, be able to last. After so many years. Hey, can we talk about Japan? Absolutely. I want to make sure that we talk about Japan because I'm super excited. Are, is it okay if we talk about Japan? No. Oh, I thought you were like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I wasn't. We're talking about American nationals and what our, our oh, I see, I see. So what our national identity was, I'm like, oh, cowboys. It'd be like founding fathers. Yeah, yeah. Yes. The founding fathers, or uh, yeah, there's. So you're just waiting for the um, Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter game yeah. to be made. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I wasn't meaning to disparage. 
So, so uh, I know that uh, Mark Causey's here, who, who knows some stuff about the Japanese RPG scene as well. Um, but uh, I, and I talked recently. I sort of interviewed Andy Kikowski, who's the guy who runs j-rpg.com, which is a really good resource for this stuff. Um, and he uh, speaks fluent Japanese. He's married to a Japanese woman. He's lived in Japan for for years, um, and uh, is in the process of translating games. So he translated the game called uh, Made or facilitated the translation of Made and is about to release a game called Tenra Bancho Zero, which is uh, absolutely bonkers uh, and, and quintessentially Japanese in really weird ways. And the <coughs> that's the thing that, that excites me about the, the Japanese scene is that they're doing stuff that, that is certainly culturally relevant and appropriate to them that kind of blows our minds because it's very, very different and coming from a, a very different place. Um, they have a, 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 a different kind of gaming culture, too, in that there are two big companies. Here's the scandal. You guys ready for the scandalous part? <laughs> should, I, should I just proceed with the scandal? So you've got Fear, Far East Amusement Research, right? And they're producing games like Ten Bancho Zero. And you've got Group SNE, uh, which, which uh, is uh, producing other games like Sword World, which is one of the very first uh, native Japanese role-playing games. They are owned by the same Zaibatsu. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Same Zaibatsu owns both of them and Square Enix and a whole bunch of other entertainment <laughs> entities. Uh, so, uh, so don't tell anybody. <laughs> that's, that's as scandalous as I think we're going to get. But super weird sort of culture of play uh, in Japan. Uh, they, they don't sell through stores, typically. Uh, they sell at Kamaket, which is this giant event. That's like the thing you go to in Japan, right? So there's three or 400,000 people who descend on Tokyo for games and comics. Uh, once a year, I think. Uh, and there's a total gray market there of fan translations and people who, like, they'll stat up a bunch of Gundam and GURPS and they'll, they'll you know, photocopy that and sell it for $5 to each other, uh, which is, you know, I think quite interesting. Or uh, games that have not been translated yet will we'll get sort of under-the-table uh, translations into Japanese. Um, and these guys are, this isn't their day job, you know, these are small press, super indie people that on, on that level are operating. The, 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 uh, a couple things that are super interesting to me that, are, that, are, that represent unique technology in role playing that the Japanese have kind of come up with. One of them is the, the concept of the replay, which is uh, uh, an, extended, an extended example of play that includes all the social cues among the players. So it reads like a script, essentially. Is that fair, Mark? Absolutely. Okay. Um, so, uh, and, and the crazy thing about replays is that if you, uh, if you look at a game like Sword World, for example, there's the core rule book on the shelf. We're looking at the shelf here. There's the core rule book. There's some adventures for Sword, Sword World. And there's a bunch of replays. And so from a, from a sort of Western point of view, you're like, what's that about? You, we're going to read about other people playing this game? Why would we do that? And the Japanese answer is, making an adventure is easy. We know how to do that. Anybody can make an adventure. But we want to you know, learn how to play the game, and we want to see how other people are doing it. Um, which is super, super interesting, because that's something that I think would be enormously beneficial in our culture of play, to, to be able to see four people who are really good at a game, having a good time, doing things, uh, both socially and procedurally, uh, that illustrate to you uh, what, what a game should look like. Uh, it, it, and we don't have anything like that, typically. Uh, often we'll have examples of play embedded in our text, or mm -hmm. we'll have an example in the back, uh, but nothing as comprehensive as like a book I can give you, you know, that, that is usually they're illustrated, and they include all the, uh, the side chatter uh, that would be part of a role-playing session. Uh, and they'll even call out, for instance, if the GM is making a mistake. Like, if there's a point where they're playing through and no one really calls them on it, they're like, by the way, this isn't the way the game is written or something like that. They'll, they'll have a call out for it. That's fantastic. I'm intrigued by the illustration. Is this all like somebody rolling dice, somebody eating pizza? <laughs> <laughs> well, and the, uh, uh, the, 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 the point that was made to me about replays is that it's another method of engagement in the hobby, mm -hmm. right? So, the, so there are groups, and, and again, this is that weird gray market at Comic Cat that'll be like, hey, let's make a replay. You're a really good artist. We have an awesome group. Let's record what we do, transcribe it, add art, bind it and sell it at comic -Cat. And that's a thing that happens. Right. And that's something that we have no analog to at all. Like, we, for us, we'd be like, hey, let's make an adventure for D&D &D and sell it at Gen Con. 
uh, would be the, I guess, the closest thing. So a totally another, uh, another way of, uh, of going. Uh, another point I want to make about uh, Japanese games, and then we'll move on uh, to the world. I'm just excited about Japan right now. So, uh, uh, is uh, Typically, their games have lots of tables in them. Uh, and this is a, a, a method of reducing analysis paralysis that we're familiar with because we do the same thing. But uh, the Japanese uh, philosophy typically is, is, can be uh, defined as role or choice, which means that um, you're randomizing something, but the, the choice that results from that randomization uh, isn't hard-coded. So if you look at it and you don't like it, there's a whole list of things that you can choose from that are in that list, and you take the one that makes the most sense or that you like the best. Roller choice. I think we could do a lot more of that here. I think it's a very interesting piece mm -hmm. of gaming technology. And it's just a social thing, ultimately. And I think we probably all do it. Yeah. But, but to, to just say that's how it works is, uh, is pretty cool. Mm. I've got a couple of points to add sure. before you leave Japan. Um, I know that, uh, so there's maybe two big stores in Japan that's big being they have a web presence. Mm. And um, I know, for instance, the, there's one uh, called PlaySpace Hiroshima. And um, when Andy went to Japan to, to visit, because I, I was following the website, and I was telling Andy about it, we were using it. It was a very great, great website. He walked past it two or three times. No sign. <laughs> um, didn't realize it was a store. Basically, there was a door you could walk through, and it was just shelves of books and a guy in the back smoking. <laughs> and he just maintained his website, and he would tell you what he had for sale. Um, the other thing I wanted to, to get to is uh, where the Japanese actually role play. So in, in America, as far as I know, most people play in their homes or their apartments. And in Japan, that's not really where you game. Um, I don't know the cultural reason behind it, but generally you go to, for instance, in a popular place to go to a karaoke club. You get a nearly soundproof room. You can order food and drinks. And you've got a table in front of you, and everyone's got privacy. They can game. And you're, and you're renting that space. And you rent the space right. for for cheap at that point, because um, you're not paying for much other than just the song and things like that. You're not singing so. Um, but the other large store, the Roll and Roll Station, which is in Japan, they um, their their store is large enough that they have tables with curtains. And they put this little curtain between you and everybody else in your group and come in and play. And I think there's like a GM reward program that Andy oh, yeah, got into. Yeah, I saw his membership card at Roll and Roll. And so uh, basically to encourage uh, GMs to show up and run games for other people, there's just like a little punch card for every time that you ran a game. And they weren't going to get, like when you hit like the end of it, it wasn't something like in America, you, know, you might, might get a free drink or a free burger. <laughs> He calculated about $150 worth of merchandise was available to you at that point um, just because you kept coming in and running stuff for other people to keep the business going. Yeah, I think that's a good point about sort of the social dynamics in, in different places. Uh, a, a friend of mine in Slovenia said something very similar, that there are, there are clubs and that you sort of finance your club and that's where you play. Uh, and uh, that's a different model than we have here. In the UK, where do you guys play? I know um, you play in pubs all the time, right? All the time. Right. Um, we, trying to think, it's, it's, I think it's probably yeah, predominantly in people's homes. Um, there are games clubs, but there's not as many as there were. Um, the, and games clubs tend to be more war game focused. Um, so yeah, I'd say predominantly in people's houses. I think with the, when I went to Japan, what I found, if you're entertaining, it's very traditional things that you're doing. Mm. You don't entertain to hang out and, and you're not, you know, serving drinks at your house, you're not doing that kind of thing. You have your traditional dinner. It's all very it's a different mindset for having people So if you were gonna do something like play a role playing game, it would make a lot of outside. sense to take it outside the hall. Relaxing social stuff is outside mm -hmm. the house. So uh <clears throat> Where are we in? Um, I don't know. I know I have a Singapore distributor, but I don't know what. So, so games are sold in Singapore. <laughs> uh, but that'd be interesting. I'll have to follow up on this, I think. Uh, and uh, so my, my man in Thailand, Chris Sanderson, uh, he runs a store called Battlefield Bangkok. Uh, and uh, he, 
he said that uh, the majority of their products are in English. Uh, Esoterrorists has been translated into Thai, uh, and it's it's somewhat popular. Uh, that the the people who that that uh, Warhammer's big, uh, miniatures games are big. There's a big bias toward 40k among Thai uh, gamers, uh, and I suspect that's largely due to distribution. That mm. that those are the games that are showing up. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's the story I kind of heard again and again that the, that uh, that people are playing D and D and they're playing World of Darkness because they can get them. Um, so the guy in Israel was like, "Yeah, everybody plays D and D in World of Darkness because that's pretty much what we have." Mm. Um, he, he said that uh, Shadowrun had a Hebrew edition that nobody bought. So I don't, I don't know what <laughs> what's up with that, but <laughs> that's uh, that's what he said. So in in, uh, in Brazil. That's really been a, a big change in the market in the last two years. There's a lot of indie games coming out. Fiasco is out. Right, with the retropunk. And uh, the Spirit of the Century and a few of the genre games. Uh, and um, there's a lot of uh, good indie games that are you know, made in Brazil as well coming out. Mm. There's a zombie game, there's a, like a space uh, psychological. Horror game that came out is doing very well as well, and uh, yeah, there's this World RPG Fest every year, and I was there a few months ago, and so yeah, over ten thousand people. With oh, yeah. it was great. Yeah, check out. Did you see Valentina? Ah yes, I know the guy who wrote that. It's from my hometown, and uh, yeah, that looks great. Yeah, I'm excited. I haven't about played that. it yet, but I saw it. Before. So it, the, one of the things I think that sort of, uh, I mean, the, the hoary old cliche is that the world is getting smaller, but in, in, in such a niche activity like mm. this, it really is. And so if a guy in Brazil makes something that's incredibly cool, we're going to hear about it. Mm. And once we hear about it in the English language world, we're going to find a way to get our hands on it and, and translate it so that we can play it too. Uh, and we're starting to see that sort of the, I think typically there's been a pipeline of, games in English being translated and it's starting to reverse. We're starting to see games that originated in other languages. Uh, certainly, you guys have a line on yeah, what's happening in France stuff. and we're seeing that in Italy too. Uh, games that uh, are you know, native ideas, uh, native games that are then uh, being translated into English, which is very exciting. And Japanese, of course. Uh, we're seeing uh, games like Shinobigami is uh, coming at some point. Um, Golden Sky Stories, Rutama, Tenrabancho, Maid, uh, all of which are just bananas. They're just super interesting games. I, I need to, I'm sorry, I need to rave one more time about uh, Rutama. You, you, you played Rutama, <laughs> which, is a, which is a game uh, about walking around, I guess. Is that a fair way to describe it? I believe the best description I've heard of it is Oregon Trail, the yeah, yeah. So, so like, uh, we we needed to buy a tent, but we couldn't afford a tent. We had to get a we had to get a bad tent for for our trip to the next town, and uh, you know we had to think about the food we were gonna take, and we all got hungry and had tummy aches, and then uh, yeah, it's 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 it sounds ridiculous and fast, uh, it doesn't sound good, but it's an amazing game, uh, and the fact that it focuses on the this sort of uh, this almost metaphysical journey that you're taking is deeply satisfying in a really, really strange way. Um, and that's something that I just, I couldn't see it coming out of our design culture. You know, these are people who are thinking about things differently. Mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're a magician in Rutama, one of the first spells, if you're an autumn magician, that you can cast is to create a pile of dead leaves. I think that's great. <laughs> <laughs> was that uh, it's not the first time that French games are translated, but one of the big change now between the first one, uh, it was in Nominate, when Las Vegas, uh, uh, Dreams of Our Wars, and uh, Nephilim, is that now it's translated with the French feeling, and it's not adapted to English. Um, uh, American market. Right. Yeah, I, I'd heard that the, the two editions of In Nominee yeah. were very, very different. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's really not the same. So can you, can you speak to the, the idea of French feeling? I've heard, I've heard that. Uh, my, I have Italian friends who were like, wow, the, the Italian edition of Trail of Cthulhu just doesn't, it's not Italian. <laughs> and I, I don't know what that means. But well, was, Wasn't it an element of censorship, I think, um, with the 
I think if it was, I can't remember if it was in nominee or. In nominee was censored a lot. Yeah. yeah. That there was. What? In France, uh, you don't censor a game. Mm. People will do themselves if they want. Uh, people tend to censor themselves, especially in game club. I think one third of the Romanian in France is in game club and not uh, home. And what, uh, we had a big problem a few years ago about uh, European games and the and the towns and so on. Mm. Uh, so, uh, while it made a move underground for a few times, and it dealt two steps from the underground scene, and mm. I would say, yes, you can do uh, big diamonds uh, that have to uh, that have to make sense to have progress. Yes, it's good. You can do. <laughs> you never publish such in. It's a but yeah. we can. I see. Uh, the thing is, it's a market for adult players, mm. and uh, it's yes, you have that. Uh, that's something. Uh, I think uh, it's more on the role play part. Uh, you don't really look at how it works, but you look at how you want the game to feel. Mm. Uh, it's something from Shadows of Eastern now. Mm. Something that you see in interest. Sometimes uh, the game system is not that good. Uh, like an example, for example, in Dresden, the first time, I was like, mm, but how does that work? <laughs> it works perfectly for the record. <laughs> 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 no, it's, it's fine, but yeah, that's all right, I'm uh, And well, when, when it's translated, there was some multiple game before and so on, so mm. you have the idea how it works, but sometimes it's quite uh, unfixed. Uh, you don't have a really, really precise way to tell yeah. how the game system works. You have to improvise. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's. Right. I mean, it's. I mean, that's. I think going into um, game design as well a bit there, but um, I, I, I would say that as well. You see very strongly themed games um, from Europe. Um, it's. I mean, yeah, definitely starting with the the concept and the theme and the mood that you're trying to evoke, and um, um, and then yeah, some de deriving some mechanics from from that um, for varying degrees of success, as you say, but. Um, uh, you it's you don't see as many like, you, you don't see as many ug ugly role playing books from Europe. No, <laughs> it I, tends I, to be they tend to be very pretty. Well, in France, I think the best uh, that we have now is from the two uh, Absolutely, they're gorgeous, aren't they? The yes. um, yeah, I mean French and German um, Cthulhu supplements, absolutely wonderful. It's. Um, to the to the point where I'm, I mean, it's always difficult when you're doing translations back, and it's you've got to weigh up whether it's worth it. But it's, it's rather, I'd, never mind the words. I would pay just for the layout files. <laughs> <laughs> I have a German Cthulhu book. I don't read German, but <laughs> <laughs> why, the, um, why doesn't that happen more often? Like, why not? Like, if translations are happening, why not get that layout? Well, we do. It's in our yeah. contract. I mean, we uh, we, we learn. Yeah, you, you get the you get the package when you when you when you license generally. Um, and you can reuse it for uh, like your own wherever your company is based. That language. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It tends to be you. You license for a, a language based market um, rather rather than a strict territory. Um, you you just get the, the the rights to sell that that language edition. Or John, is your question about, for example, what, the why I'm not using the Italian gorgeous exactly. layout in my book? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the the um, we we actually I mean it's in our contract that we have the rights to to reuse the 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 layout that they created. Um, there are a couple of reasons for that that mostly involve time. It would we would have to either pay somebody or reconfigure it ourselves for domestic printers um, because it's done in A5 I guess instead of six by nine, and so that's potentially a problem. And then there are some other issues related to to that. So it, it's not as simple as just. Mm, Copying and replacing our text with their layout. But it is an increasingly common phenomenon. And one of the, I think, first big example, not big examples, but well known some barbarians of Lemuria. Mm. If you've ever seen the first edition of that game, it's hideous. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, somebody fell in love with it. I think it was a French edition. 
uh, it was a French or Italian, and did all new art and turned it into something gorgeous. And they immediately did a new edition using uh, the European art, and mm -hmm. suddenly had a really pretty professional looking game. Yeah, yeah, that's happened with um, uh, Clinton Nixon's games too. Like, uh, because he releases some of your Creative Commons, some dude in Spain made a gorgeous version, and uh, you know that be becomes part of the the pipeline. I'm not sure that he actually did an English version of that, but um, anyway. Along the same vein, do you find, oh, they did it, I wish I did it that way, and the next time you do something, you say, I'm going to use that idea. I like the way they did that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow suit. I, I've had that experience. Yeah. yeah. The one that I aspire to is the, um, I can't remember which, which company is it now, but the, um, their version of it, the Mountains of Madness um, supplement special edition, Came it came in a crate um, with a fla folded a flag. French version, of course. French version of Neanderthals. The new one, the crater one, come in. How do you say that? The satchel. Yeah, in a satchel with the Tian sign on it. That's great. That was brilliant, isn't it? But even something as simple as the like the. The Italian edition of, of Fiasco, they, they integrated tabs into the layout, which we just hadn't done. Uh, and it looks great, and so now we've got tabs. You know, things like that, for sure. I, I can't tell you anything about Greece, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, do you know anything about the Greek RPG market? Um, no, no, nothing. No, nothing. nothing. Not worth it. Not worth it. <laughs> well, that's sure it's lovely. Morning, Actually, that, that no. is a, that's an interesting point. Uh, there are many uh, uh, essentially small languages that just, th there's not going to ever be a percentage in translating a, a game into Slovenian, right? Um, so they're either going to do a fan translation or they're going to play in English. Uh, and uh, my Slovenian friend said that uh, their language doesn't even have the, the rigor of vocabulary to, to do it, so that they'll, they'll play in, in Slovenian and switch back and forth to English. There's only one word for anything that you would hit somebody with that is blunt in Slovenian. It's a hammer, it's a mace, it's a, it's a cudgel. It, that's the word. And that's, so, so it makes more sense if you're playing a fantasy game just to do it in English at that point. Well, and I knew in Greece, like if you watch movies there, it's all subtitles. It's rarely do they actually translate it to Greek. Mm. So it's not rarely dubbed. In a lot of places I've been where they use subtitles mostly, they rather just buy the thing in English. Sure. Because they're already used to that with all their forms of media. Yep. Right. And you can see that country to country dubbing versus subtitling. Yeah, I love Italy. Like for example, they don't they want the, they have mostly dubbing. Yeah. In Germany, I think a lot of that's different national feeling about how important the language is. In Italy and in France, there's a lot of lang the language is important. The, and the preservation of it. It's, they have been for their language, but it's very, very costly to make a translation and an adaptation. So uh, they are like, what well, we prefer playing English uh, than have a bad one. Mm, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Is, does anyone know anything about Africa? Uh, I, I asked, I know some South Africans, I asked them, they didn't reply, so I have no idea what's happening there. Other than not sure. Yeah. India? Um, there's, from what I've heard, it's it's still fairly small, um, but there is some going, I mean, it's it's obviously for us, um, it's a huge potential market, it's something we need to find out about, but yeah, no, I don't have much information. I mean, most of my Indian friends who live there play TNT uh, English Repetition. Mm -hmm. And it's considered like it's a way to learn English too. Oh, like see, a that's lot of people are like, yeah. well, if I get to play this game, like you know, drove from Poland, he learned English from playing D and D. Which is so his English is that makes a lot of sense. He's always talking about hauberks and glaives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, still know all about celerity. In India, there is some we have one customer in our store that work in India and that buy some role-playing games in French or English mm. and fly them back to India and uh, they use it as a means to uh, learn um, 
game concept for video games. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's interesting. And that makes... they use board <laughs> games and board games for that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yes, there is quite a few gaming clubs uh, that make board games and board play games in uh, the uh, uh, ETA University in Okay. What about uh, oh, Russia? Russia's got a, 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 a very active gaming culture. There's a lot of LARPing that happens there. There's a lot of translation. Um, uh, again, sort of native language editions, I think, are more mm. popular there. Did you guys have a Russian translation? No, no. Well, we've, I think we're starting to get some inquiries. But, uh. Um, but sort of an interesting anecdote about Russia related to live-action role-play they take it really seriously, and there's a big community uh, that likes to put on big events. So a Russian LARP may have 3,000 attendees. They'll have they'll, they'll you know do do these massive massive games. They they last year they built a city for for a LARP they ran. And they do enough video games like uh, fans are of video games will LARP the video game out. Yep. Over like five four or five days, and there'll be like thousands. Of Yep, it is a it's a very very different culture than the way they approach games. It's very intense, very strange, it's strange to us. As far as like the way that gamers are viewed by non-gamers in the different cultures, we know it's a really big difference in different countries. Because I know here it's is it isn't a stigma. Uh -huh. It kind of depends. It's getting, uh, less, so it's getting much less yeah. stigma. There's, but mm -hmm. I know in Israel last I known like you can't serve in the military if you have a background having played D&D because they did a study that showed people who played role-playing games are unstable. <laughs> like, I, I, this, is old, this is an old study. They can be mind controlled easier. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, GM it's something about yeah. like, you got <laughs> <laughs> I sent in the GMs, retreats, retreat. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there are, there are huge differences country to country in the, in the way that it's perceived. If you go to Denmark, for example, mm. uh, it is just a thing you do. Right, you can go. You can go to Buffer LARP on the weekends, and it's totally socially acceptable. And yeah. there, are, there are people who make their living facilitating Buffer LARPs there, uh, and there are government grants all over the Nordic countries for all all kinds of games. Uh, uh, in Brazil, there was some sort of religious backlash a few years ago. Sort of a satanic panic kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. and there's still some of that. I know people that are used to play in a club and like a. And a, a, a sort of a shopping mall, a store in a shopping mall, and then they had to stop because you know, the new guy who run the place was very religious and was against RPG because still mm. there. You know, I think it's you know probably similar to what happened to D and D in the early days. Right? Yeah. So maybe it's part of growing. Yeah, but I think the, per the cultural perception varies a lot from place to place. <clears throat> It's probably similar in the UK to over here. It's kind of you're on the low rungs of the geek ladder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We, we've recently had a bit more, yeah, there's a bit of, geeks are seen as a bit more cool these days, thanks to Big Bang Theory and things like that, but, um, but yeah, we're <laughs> still down there. <laughs> um, so I'm just trying to think it has changed a bit. But no, I think, yeah, we're, it's still not particularly socially encouraged. <laughs> so so it, is, it is unnerving to go someplace like Denmark or Finland where it's just a thing you do, it's cool, mm -hmm. nobody, nobody cares. That's that's refreshing. Yes. Like, would, would you say if you go to Denmark or Finland and you mention it to someone, even if they don't play, they're like, oh yeah, I have friends. Mm -hmm. I totally. Because mm -hmm. yeah, I was explaining to some friends I was coming to Gen Con, like, what's that? And I was like, oh, like, tabletop role thing. They're like, really? Like a BDSM thing? I was like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think the biggest thing that's working in our favour, though, is the mainstreaming of board games. Yeah, for um, sure. I think we're kind of just tag along with those and... Uh, yeah, that seems to be seems to be working. Out so much on computer games? I think it's it's still seen as fairly separate. Um, definitely, yeah, a link. Um, but, but in the UK, you get oh, with with those figures, um, that tends to be the. You know, I think because we've got such um, such a high street presence with Games Workshop, um, that that's the that's the main link in. But in Iceland a few years ago, there was a, a Icelandic movie, and I think it's still the. the the most successful Icelandic movie ever. Mm. Everyone has seen it. It was all about tabletop role playing. That was brilliant. So everyone knows what it is now. Yeah. Uh, even you know my day job when I was standing there, going to the US and what is it for? So you know, like that movie, and then they would know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the movie in Icelandic is called Astropia. Yeah. I think yeah. it's been released in the US as Dogs and Damsels. Okay. And uh, that's a fun movie. <laughs> yeah. my, my friend, who's an archaeologist, he goes to Iceland every summer. 
and he's a gamer. And when he goes, a lot of the people he's working with aren't gamers, but they all know what it is, and he gets them to game. Ten hours, and they bust out some dice, and so yeah. not a problem. Right that movie really increased increase the interest, and, and, yeah, and the hobby as a, gen, uh, as a general thing. Yeah, uh, a lot of people joining the clubs and so on. But one of the other things that, that in the UK we had was um, there was a, a brief craze of those murder mystery mm. party game things that um, you, know, if you, you have to make the link for people between that and role playing. But um, yeah, that, that's certainly got more people interested in, in trying something a bit new. We have about five minutes left. So uh, are there other questions or things people would like to talk about? China. China. I, I was waiting for someone to bring that up. Uh, I asked. Uh, I asked several uh, sort of China, I, I know a guy who's a China policy expert, and he's also a gamer, Jonathan Walton. And I said, hook me up, man. Tell me what's going on in Taiwan and on the mainland and in Hong Kong, and he did not follow through. Uh, I'm recording this. Jonathan Walton, you're on the hook. Uh, so I, honestly, I don't, I don't know. There's a, uh, one of the podcasts, the Jankcast, one of the cast members has to go to China like every other month, something like that. He's, he's pretty... Hooked in on what's going on in China. Uh, I wish I'd known. I would have. Yeah. Uh, yeah, if I'd known, I could have brought it. That's, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, after we talk, I would, I'd be interested, genuinely, okay. yeah. finding out. Mm. So that would be, would be cool. Um, and in all these, these places, there's an expat culture of gamers, too. Yeah. You know, that, that is not really worth talking about beyond the fact that it influences the people that they're hanging out with that are part of the native culture, I guess. Mm. Um, um, what does freeform mean in Australia? That's a great question. Uh, uh, they do things differently. They, they've yeah. appropriated that word uh, in their own way that I don't entirely understand. It's very different from like uh, what we call structured freeform or what Nordic freeform means. I, do, you, do you have any ex experience with no. Australian freeform? None whatsoever. Uh, so so I don't even want to pontificate on it. Uh, we'll, we'll find some Australians and get them to tell you. <laughs> there are actually some good resources on the web about it that I've read, but I still don't understand it. Do you find that depending on the cultures and the people who do historical kind of reenactment will have more of an influence? I know you were saying like Finland, it's acceptable. And I know historical Bronze Age reenactment is huge up there. Okay. I mean, in the UK, there is like warring tribes. Um, I think the historical reenactors think that the you know, they don't see that there there's there's many links between what they're doing sure. and what the role players are doing. And here um, it's American Civil War or you know the, or World War II reenactors who are essentially playing elaborate games. Yeah. And that there's a, there's lots of potential for cross pollination, but I don't see it happening. Either. No, no, there's yeah, definitely a barrier between it. Uh, two final question. Final comment. Oh, we'd love to meet him. <laughs> Good deal. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for that applause, John Stavropoulos. <laughs> It wasn't on the flip this table. All right. <laughs>